This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 152 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is perhaps the greatest director and producer of live television events in the history of the medium, a man who has overseen the telecasts of 14 Emmy Award ceremonies, three Academy Award ceremonies, three Tony Award ceremonies, six Super Bowl halftime shows, two Olympics opening ceremonies, one presidential convention, and countless incredible music and variety specials, the great Don Misher. Across roughly 50 years in the business, 77-year-old Misher, who presides over Los Angeles's Don Misher Productions, has personally accumulated an astounding 15 Emmy Awards, 10 Directors Guild of America Awards, more than anyone else in history, the Producers Guild of America's Award for Lifetime Achievement in Television, and a Peabody Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. In short, he's the gold standard. Misher's latest must-see production was recorded in front of a live audience last September, but did not air until January, when ABC broadcast it to millions. It's called Taking the Stage, African-American Music and Stories that Changed America, and it was an epic celebration of the opening of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., featuring artists of today celebrating events and achievements of the past through song, dance, and spoken word. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Misher and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how the media's coverage of JFK's assassination helped to convince a kid from San Antonio that he ought to pursue a career in television, how live events, as opposed to episodic television or films, became his primary focus, what specifically goes into bringing to life large-scale events that get broadcast to massive audiences the world over, and how he handles the stress that comes with the job, why Taking the Stage is one of the productions of which he is proudest, and what he makes of some of his greatest successes, like the 1996 Summer Olympics opening ceremony featuring Muhammad Ali and the 2007 Super Bowl halftime show featuring Prince, some of his biggest disappointments, like the 2004 Democratic National Convention at which the balloons failed to drop, and the handling by his peers of other infamous on-air crises, from Janet Jackson's nipple slip to the La La Land Moonlight debacle at the most recent Oscars. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Don, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Honored to have you. And we always begin with just the the basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Okay, I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Mm -hmm. I had a certain aptitude for math in college, and I also studied sociology and political science Mm -hmm. in college at the University of Texas in Austin. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, finished my master's degree and was kind of headed toward a Ph.D., when I finally surrendered to this <laughs> desire that yes, I had yes. to get involved in this medium called television. And I'm going to stop you because I want to go through some of the things that led up to that. And I know, well, first of all, just do you remember the first time you watched television? I do remember it quite clearly. I was about eight years old. There was a basketball arena where the Spurs play in yep. San Antonio. And my father took me there for this new thing called television. And <laughs> this is in the middle of the, yeah, in yeah. the middle of the basketball floor, there was uh, there were some singers and a few musicians. Yeah. They were performing. There were I think three cameras around them. And the whole outside of the court was lined up with television sets, one right next to the other. <laughs> they were turned to face the audience. Right. So we sat in the audience. We saw what was happening in the center of the basketball court. And we saw the images as they were being broadcast on television. And I simply fell in love with this concept. It was an an impressionable age. And I subsequently, from time to time, would be in an environment where television was being made. I played in a country band. and We would play local television shows. I just became enthralled with it. By the time I was in junior high school, Mm -hmm. I converted our family garage to a television studio. I hung a curtain. I had a a little plastic record player that played music. I made a camera out of a cardboard box and a toilet paper, empty toilet paper (laughs) spools and paper towel holders. A broom was the pan handle. And I dreamed at that point of of someday growing up and being a cameraman and having an image from the camera that I was operating seen around the country. Amazing. That was my my dream. By the time you went off to the University of Texas at Austin, at that time, I can't imagine there were things offered in school yet about how to, you know, how to pursue broadcast journalism or things like that. Any anything that would have prepared you for this life. In fact, what it sounds like was that just fortuitously, sort of tragically, the thing that happened when you were there was November 22nd, 1963. 
Well, November 22nd, 1963, for me personally, and I think for much of the country, television had been around in the mainstream for a dozen years. Mm -hmm. But I think on that weekend, the power of the medium was truly felt. I mean, as a nation, when Kennedy was shot on his way to the airport, Mm -hmm. you know, and he was in our state. Yeah. And the, the tragedy of that as a nation, television became a functional way to mourn together. And also this is live television, which is so key to all what you live. would go on and, and do, live. you know, right? Yeah, it was all live television. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the actual assassination attempt was not live, right. but everything thereafter was. Including Jack Ruby. Then, then you had the Jack Ruby shooting Lee Harvey Oswald in the Dallas Police Department. And all the rest of it. And and it was a way for us to handle our grief mm-hmm. and to share our grief with one another as a nation. And after that weekend, and things happened to me that particular weekend, but after that weekend, I just said, this medium, I, I really want to try and make a living, you know, one way or the other in this medium. And let's talk about what happened to you that weekend, because you're, I guess, in the political science department. Right. And Kennedy had been headed to Austin. Right. And so now all these news reporters have descended on Texas and throughout the state, and they need young guys to help, right? Yeah, well, I mean, by like three hours, the the assassination, I think Kennedy was declared deceased at 1230 that afternoon. And by 3.30 or 4, hordes of reporters and journalists were descending on Austin. Uh Mm-hmm. Primarily because they wanted to know more about the man who was now president. Right. And being a student of political science in Texas, I knew a lot about Lyndon Johnson, a lot about the legislature. I got hired as a gopher, as a runner. First, there was a crew from NBC. I told them how to get to the ranch. I talked a little bit about Johnson's role in Texas politics and all this. And then a PBS crew came down. And I actually drove them around and helped them do research and so forth. And by that night, by 7 or 8 o'clock in Austin time, I was seeing what these men and women had done on the air. and it, With it, the information you helped. With, uh, but yeah, with the information that they, they were looking for. I, yeah. I don't know how much I really helped them, yeah. but I was a small part of that. Yeah. And simultaneously, we're dealing with this deep, feeling of grief and mm-hmm. loss, and I just couldn't believe the impact of this medium, you know? So that kind of started me, it kind of shook me out of my laissez-faire attitude about someday I'd like to do television. Right. By that time that weekend was over, I said, I want to take a shot with this medium. Despite what my family said and everybody else. Because <laughs> they, they had probably some reservations. It's oh, not, yeah. Are yeah. you kidding? <laughs> I mean, it always reminds me, Robin Williams once told me that. When he decided to go to Juilliard, and he got accepted at Juilliard, his father, and he was raised in Detroit, said to him, that's great, Robin, I'm glad you got into Juilliard, but you should have a backup job just in case, and I would suggest plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Now, in, in, in your case, the way that you pursued this, you've now committed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after TV, and you had been at University of Texas at Austin for not only a bachelor's but also a master's right, right? so now you, you finish your master's and initially you were you were i guess going to go after a phd but instead you go after a grant which is going right. to enable you to pursue this how did that work 
there was a man running. By the way, just to go back to answer your the part of your other question, sure. there were there were no real courses in terms of how to produce or direct television yeah. at this time. Yeah. There there was a curriculum on television, the history of television, you know, how it all happened with GE and NBC and the Blue Network and right. the Red Network right. and all this. So there was a man named Bob Squire who ran the PBS station, the public television station, Channel 9, mm-hmm. in Austin. It's still there. KRLN is what it was, and I think it's still that. They do Austin City Limits from there now. Mm-hmm. And we played poker together <laughs> in a weekly <laughs> poker game. And he said, if you're really interested in television, I think maybe I can get you a grant. And he said, the Ford Foundation is trying to get people from academia interested in a career in television, which is so ironic today <laughs> because everybody wants a right, career in right, television. Right. You'd never get paid. No Nobody way. Nobody would ever pay you. No way. That. But I, I applied for one of those and got one. So that what happened was that grant supported me. I was married at the time, and my wife was teaching school in the Austin Public Schools. But that grant supported me for a year. And at the end of that year, PBS had liked your contributions and wanted to keep you around? Yes, they did. At that point, I had done things like pull cable, hang lights. I painted scenery. Yeah. I ran videotape machines. I ran what we called film chains, yeah. where film would run and be projected into a television camera. I ran camera, ultimately. And in the course of a year... Those of us who were in this program at the University of Texas got a wonderful, wonderful hands-on experience about what it's like to do television. A real foundation. And we did a lot of really bad television in Austin <laughs> at that time. I did the Opera Tosca uh-huh. with the University of Texas Opera Department. Right. I directed it okay. with two black and white cameras. And it didn't didn't quite didn't quite hit with everybody. You're saying <laughs> I'm, I would be afraid to go back and look at that it, now. Yeah. But but I got to tell you, but we learned so yeah. much, yeah. and you really learn from your failures right. more than you learn from your successes. So at the end of that year, did you briefly stay with PBS? I know you ended up in D.C., but was there a brief? Uh, no, I I was in Austin. And the station wanted to hire me. They, they, liked, they liked me, and I, I loved my work, and I hope that I contributed. But th- there was an issue in terms of hiring me. There was one tube, one black and white image Orthicon tube, which is what the image named yeah. after, in a black and white camera that had shown some signs of not lasting very long. And they said to me, I remember Naki Willett, who was the head engineer, saying to me, you know, we're either going to buy a new tube or we're going to hire you for a year. <laughs> what what tipped the decision? What was the... <laughs> well, I don't know, right. but I'm glad they decided yes. the way they did. But So they decided to hire me. Right. And one year to the date right. after that, that tube blew out. <laughs> And I now have it you have encased it? in glass in my office. Oh, that's fantastic. Over here in Hollywood. That's fantastic. You know. So what was it that ultimately, though, motivated you to move to D.C., which was an important decision because not only were you there working initially, I guess, for the U.S. Information Agency, where I learned 
recently when we had Sheila Nevins on this podcast that I guess she was one of your employees. Is that right? Yeah, Sheila Nevins. I met Sheila yeah. um, at in Washington at yeah. the U.S. Information Agency. Right. It's funny because Sheila and I kind of shared the same pathway for a long time. And so we met there and we produced kind of propaganda. I would call it very light-handed propaganda <laughs> films, okay? Yeah. We would we'd take a Dominican Republic baseball player who played with the Chicago Cubs. Right. And we'd do just a, do a three-minute piece right. on him, where he came from, how he got to the Chicago Cubs. Right. We would provide an on-camera personality to tell the story in Spanish, and then we'd give it free to any station that wanted it. You know, that's what the job of the U.S. Information Agency was. Right. And Sheila was part of that. And then you both actually ended up at the Great American Dream Machine, That's right? That's correct. Ulti- yeah. In 1968 came, and I was beginning to get take interest politically. I was a big supporter of Bobby Kennedy. Mm-hmm. When he was killed out here in June of 68, Hubert Humphrey was now running against Nixon. And so we all kind of came together and tried to help Humphrey mm-hmm. beat Nixon mm-hmm. in that election. Yes. And in the course of that, we met a number of producers from New York. I met a guy named Al Perlmutter, okay? And Al, a year or two later, after 1968, Nixon did win that election, of course. He lived in New York, worked at Channel 13, and he began, he developed a new show called The Great American Dream Machine. Mm -hmm. And he asked me to come direct it. I guess you're only directing up to that point. I know you'd done some political spots for Charles Guggenheim when you were in D.C., right? Yes. Was I'm, that I, the first time you ever directed? Well, no. I had directed live television all the way back to Channel 9, okay. but local stuff. Right. I mean, nothing that was as significant as what became kind of a flagship program right. You know, for, for PBS. With the Great American with, with, Dream With the Great American Dream Machine. Yes. But yes, I worked for Charlie Guggenheim, a filmmaker, very distinguished yeah. filmmaker, the father of Davis Guggenheim, yes. Yes. Oscar winner. Charlie, though, was a three-time, <laughs> three-time documentary. Three-time, yeah. three-time Oscar winner yeah. and a great filmmaker. Yeah. It was immensely helpful to work with him. He taught me that it's okay to violate rules. It's okay to not do something the way it's always been done, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Anyway, so then we ended up all, we, we ended up along with Sheila Nevins at the Great American Dream Machine in New York. And that's sort of where you first made your name in, right. the, in the business, right? Yeah. yeah. So before we go into any of the specific, amazing, and very varied kinds of things that you've done, particularly in the area of live television, I want to just ask you generally about the job of making live television. It's my sense that theater is a writer's medium. Film is a director's medium, but live television is definitely a producer's medium. Is that fair to say? I think that's probably true. Although it's hard for me to eliminate the director in there because when you're on the air live, the person sitting in that chair is the one on whose shoulder falls the responsibility. You know, just to open this discussion yeah. up, I mean, what we've seen with Greece yes. and with uh, Sound of Music. These live These musicals. live, live musicals. Yes. They've actually, and I'm on the board of the Directors Guild, yes. you know, and we've dealt with this issue of, well, how do we give credit to both of these people who are both legitimately directors, yes. you know? Because one is directing the dramatic content and... 
the other, the, the television director, is deciding what camera angles, what lenses, camera movements, cueing all the uh, special effects, the music, the smoke, whatever there is. Yeah. And basically, that director on a live show is doing all the post by herself or himself yeah. instantly yeah. live. Uh, You're editing the show. As it goes, yeah. You know? But generally, that's an extraordinary circumstance in a in in a more well. I guess it's not because that's live television in the same way that an award show or other things are. But I guess the question is, when it comes to live television, let's let's establish our terms early on. What is the job in live television of a director, which is what you initially did in live television, versus a producer, which is what I think mostly you've done more recently? Yes, I have done much more producing recently. Yeah. The producer is the person who basically makes it happen. The producer is very often involved in the actual show, sometimes pitched the show to somebody Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. sold the show. Mm -hmm. They are responsible for getting every detail accomplished. And that starts with a concept. It includes booking. It includes the production design. It includes a production designer. It includes the music director and and the sound and feel of the show. And so all the elements it takes to make it all come together and happen at that moment live, that's the job of the producer. On live television, when you get to those last few days before the live broadcast, the producer, in a sense, hands it over to the director. And the director, who's sitting in the chair... Okay, when I say chair, I'm talking about the chair in the truck or wherever that is. Right. Okay, they are now in an execution mode. As producer, you still have input. You can say, "Be careful! Don't shoot a cutaway of that person sitting in the audience because they're not having a good time," you know, or something like yes. that. Yes. So you still have some influence. But the gist is, your, the producer envisions it and lines it up, and then the director is meant to make it happen. That is correct. That's exactly correct. And as as an example, let's take last year's Emmys, which we produced. Glenn Weiss directed it. Jimmy Kimmel was the host. Mm -hmm. The hands, the the, the show was in Glenn's hands. Mm -hmm. But during every commercial break, the first thing that would happen when we count out of the show and we're now on a commercial break Mm -hmm. would be I would get on with the crew and with Glenn Weiss in the truck and discuss where we were in terms of time. And I would say we're now running six and a half minutes long. Mm-hmm. We're going to cancel the film package for the next award and just go to a live read of the nominees who are sitting in the audience. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to, if you're running short, we say we're going to use a long package. And so the producer at that point primarily focuses on timing. Let's say there's a dispute, though, and you ha- you feel we should get rid of the film clip package and the director is reluctant to do that. Who ultimately has the final the producer, say? The producer has the final say, okay. but I've never had a director do that. They have so much on their plate and right. so much in their head. They're, they welcome any help they can sure. get. The last thing they want to worry about is what do we have to do to cut the time down? Right. right. You know, you will have more of a problem as a producer when it comes to making cuts with right. the talent. Right. Because you may have a major star right. who was booked and was told they could tell the story right. about their first experience in television. <laughs> right. But it takes a minute and 10 seconds. And before they come out, like 30 seconds ahead of time, 
You have to walk back to them as a producer and say, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. we just can't do it. We don't have time. I need you just to walk out and read the names of the nominations. Mm -hmm. That's when you have the conflict. Yes. (laughs) Let's now step back a bit and just in general, how do you even decide whether or not to take on a project? Because you as Don Misher are basically, as I understand it, an independent contractor. You have Don Misher Productions. You have a few people that work with you. But if somebody wants you to direct or produce their show, they are bringing you and your your teammates in. Then they entrust it to you to hire the other people. But before any of that can happen, I'm sure you get, especially these days, get pitched everything. How do you decide what to take and what not to take? That's a real good question. We have a very small company. We expand greatly. When, when we're doing the Emmys, we end up having 120 people wow. working for us, okay? Wow. But we have like five or six people basically working. The first thing that you think about is, am I the right guy for this? Are we the right company? Will this work within our schedule? I don't like being under the pressure of doing two or three things simultaneously where something gets compromised, Mm -hmm. and we have said no to things in the past that I wish we didn't have to say no to, Mm -hmm. but we had been committed to to other projects. And then you want something that's meaningful. We all strive to have some kind of emotional effect with what we do. That's what makes us feel good, Mm -hmm. and that's really true of live television as well. So you look at all these things. You, You look at questions like, Do the people that want us to do this, do they understand what it's going to cost? To what extent will they let us be autonomous? Certainly, whoever is paying for this show or hiring you, in the end, they're going to make the final decisions. Okay? So you have to make sure that you feel like you're compatible. Right. That that they're not going to butt into your territory of what you need to do. Butt in is the wrong word, but yeah, try and influence it too much. I mean... There have been several times in my career in which I've had so much micromanaging Mm. from the people that have hired us that I've basically said, you know what, I respect what you want, but you really should be doing this yourself. You don't you don't need us to do this. Right. You know, if if you're going to make all these fine decisions, you really ought to think about doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're probably going to be happier with the end product. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can say that as well. But to your credit, I guess, as a, and, and a testament to your peacemaking skills or people skills, which I think must be integral to either of these jobs of directing or producing live television, I, I read that you've never quit a job once you've taken it on. No, but I sure threatened. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have people on my staff that would say, Don quits one time on every show. Okay. <laughs> and then comes. But he always comes yeah. back. Okay. So I guess that and also sort of begs the question, why live television as opposed to more traditional episodic or other things? I know you've done some of that, but most of your career, it seems like you've chosen to focus not on the, you know, occasionally like a Murder, She Wrote episode or something you'll do. Maybe I know you're friends with Angela Lansbury. Maybe it was because of something like that. But why is it that you keep coming back to live television? Well, I have a couple of theories. I mean, number one, I think that the stress that you go through in doing these big events, these big live events, there's something that happens chemically to your body (laughs) and in your brain. Mm -hmm. And I think that it actually is in its own way addictive. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the Hurt Locker 
and I saw American Sniper, mm-hmm. stories about these men who put their lives on the line to save other people and the intense stress they were under. And in both of those stories, when those men came home <laughs> to reunite with their families, something they dreamed right. about doing, and were looking forward to all this happiness and contentment and peace. Right. They came back and they settled into the neighborhood with their families and their wives and their children. They started going bowling on Tuesday night. They started having weekend barbecues with their neighbors. And it was only a matter of several months. And they had to get back to the theater where they were putting their lives on the line. I mean, they were addicted to that rush of knowing you saved somebody's life or in the case of American Sniper, you, you know, you, you killed an enemy, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. And it just became something that they actually needed. And I, I have jokingly said that I think a lot of us who do what we do, you know, we're stress junkies. Yeah, yeah. But there is no feeling like being in a control room and you're counting down to go on the air. I'm going to tell you a story about the opening of the Olympics, yeah. okay? The Summer Olympic Games, Centennial Olympic Games. On the headset, there are hundreds of people talking back and forth, talking back and forth. The ADs, and you have a couple of ADs, are now counting down to the beginning of the broadcast. Now, let's say 45 seconds to air, okay? Talking continues. Then they say 30 seconds to air. Suddenly, the PLs, and there's like 28 channels of them, get deathly quiet. What are PLs? Private lines, yeah. which you wear here, where you talk to your stage managers, your cameramen, uh, uh, you know, wranglers, right. you know, and so forth. Yep. So it's private line. And it gets very, very quiet. And then you get to 15 seconds to go. And then at 10, you know, you go 9, 8, and you look at that clock, and you have 30 heads of state, including the President of the United States, sitting in the audience. Mm-hmm. You're going on the air for four hours with no commercial breaks because a lot of countries don't run commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you're hitting zero, that 80% of the planet is going to see what you're doing. (laughs) That is, I think, an addictive kind of feeling. I bet. You know, and then the same thing with the Super Bowl halftime shows because I've directed six of those. Oh, yeah, we're coming to those for sure. But for me, live has always been exciting. I can't really answer it any other way it's just it it is the excitement of rolling the dice every time you go on the air it's knowing that no matter how well you planned things can go wrong Mm -hmm. as an example take this year's oscar right which we're gonna come things can go wrong well but let's let's also stick on the hurt locker american sniper metaphor for a second because the other thing that those guys had in addition to a desire to get back in the game or the the war, they also, when they were at home, couldn't stop thinking about what they had experienced or thinking about getting back. So they couldn't be in the moment because they're they're constantly, I think, still feeling the after effects of that stress or excitement or whatever it yes. is. Do you find that that was also the case in your personal life that it can that it can have a whether it's detrimental or not, that it can have some sort of an, uh, an impact on the way you are at home. Oh, I think there's no question about that. You know, another thing that happens when these things, like when you're doing the Olympics or even something 
as short as a Super Bowl halftime show, which is like 12 and a half minutes long. Mm -hmm. In the week leading up to it and the days leading up to it and the day of it and all the rest of it, I mean, you're in a war, okay? You're in a war. It's a battle. Mm -hmm. And you are you are bonding with your team. It's like you are charging the hill. Mm-hmm. And the Super Bowl is over. The field lights come back on. <laughs> the stage breaks up and goes away. And it's all gone. It's mm-hmm. like skywriting. Mm-hmm. It just disappeared. And one thing that you always feel, and all of us in this business feel this, you really go through depression. Mm-hmm. It's like postpartum depression I in bet. a sense. I mean, you go through it because the battle's over. Mm-hmm. You won or you lost, but the battle's over. We're not engaged anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the psychological things that all of us who do live television are well aware is coming, you know? And there's nothing you can do about it, right? Yeah. No, there's not, not really. That just, that comes with the job. So the thing, the, the type of live television event that you really seem to have started with was the music variety special, I think, which was especially big in the 70s and maybe early 80s. I guess it may have started with Liza with a Z or something around then. But it seems like that was a big thing for you. And I read one article where you said... You've done your homework. Man. I try, God, I, I try. <laughs> Thank you. You've no, well, done your homework I, I, more I, listen, than anybody it, I've ever talked to. It's an opportunity to... <laughs> I, I don't get to speak to you every day. This is. I right. want to make the most okay. of it. But, I mean, basically the gist was that you especially liked working with creative musical and performance talents, musical performers especially, I guess. And obviously there are elements of that in a Super Bowl halftime show or at an award show. But here when you're building a a special around a person or a band or a type of performer, that really gave you a thrill, right? It it, it did. And there was a time in the 80s when, you know, we had these things called concept specials instead of just shooting a concert with somebody singing their hit songs. We would write special material. We would pick songs that this artist was not known for and create a concept. In the 80s, it would be things like John Denver and the Ladies. (laughs) And we had four ladies. (laughs) And each one did a turn with John John. Denver. (laughs) You know, Shirley MacLaine did several with her again in the 80s. And we did one called Illusions, you know, the illusions in life. And we used technical imagery, which was very state-of-the-art and far advanced at that time, Mm -hmm. which looks like it was (laughs) shot in the dark ages now. But it would all be about illusions. And Goldie and Liza together. Yeah. Fred Ebb of Candor and Ed, you know, who wrote Applause. Yeah, Chicago. Yeah. They, uh, you know, Fred had this idea of the two women working together, so that became a concept. Amazing. And we shot a little bit of it in New York and out here and so forth. So, But those kind of disappeared. Well, would one of them, though, have been... Motown 25 yesterday, today, and tomorrow in 1983. Yes, that was a the the previous ones that I mentioned yes. as examples. Yes, were more concept driven. Yeah, in the sense that they were staged very unusually, and we created new forms of entertainment for that artist. Motown was also a concept special mm-hmm. in which the artist came on and did a Motown song or two. Okay. And that was done in 1983 at Pasadena Civic. Did it with Suzanne DePass mm-hmm. and, and Buzz Cohan. And we produced it together. And I directed it. And it was a really 
incredible show, but I didn't realize that for two to three weeks. When the show was over, I was really depressed because being someone who does live television, I had prided myself Mm -hmm. on being able to run a theatrical show Mm -hmm. that's seamless, like you're going to a Broadway play or musical. Mm -hmm. Start, stop, go straight through it, Mm -hmm. two hours, two and a half hours. And we were just kind of snake bit on that show, you know, and things happened that caused it to be kind of a jerky, rough evening. Mm -hmm. People would get lost. We had set up Stevie Wonder to be the first performance. And it was a big setup with brass and six background singers and all the rest of it. And I remember being in the truck and we're like 22 or 23 minutes ready from starting the show. Yeah. And we, nobody can find Stevie. Oh, my God. And, and Stevie's guy, Reggie, called me in the truck and said, how you doing, man? I said, fine. Where, where are you guys? You know, you're yeah. you're on in 25 yeah. minutes. He said, well, you know, we're not going to be there tonight, but I promise you we're going to be there first thing tomorrow morning. What? That's how we started. So when the overture was played, we stopped and had to strike the Stevie set and set up the temptations in the tops. Oh, my <laughs> God. And you never got an explanation for what that was no, about? No, but that, but you know what? I guess it it's happens. It's just one yeah. of those things that happens. I Jeez. mean, it's not something, it's not a chip you carry around no, on I your guess shoulder. No, you can't. But... It's a problem that you have to deal with. And, and you try and keep a positive attitude and keep people going. I was going to say, you must have great patience because I, I would flip it out was, It was thing. tough. Yeah. It was tough. And that there was a big party afterward, right. and I... I said, I can't go over there and walk in to that party. I'm I'm embarrassed by all the mishaps we had this evening and I you know, I feel like I've got to take responsibility for that. And so I just went back to my hotel room and collapsed. But we should note that however you may have felt at that moment, you also made a, a great decision that could have really changed music history if you had chosen the alternative option. Can you share what that was? Sure. The deal that Suzanne DePass presented to all the artists, and you know, she was with Barry Gordy and Motown from the beginning, was that everybody had to come on and do an old Motown hit of theirs. It's Motown 25, 25 years of Motown. You cannot come on and do a new song. Marvin Gaye wanted to do a new song. No. Lionel Richie wanted to do a new song. No. Right. Okay. All during this process, we were trying to get Michael Jackson to reunite with the brothers. We wanted to bring the Jackson 5 back. It had been years. It had been a long time since they had performed together. We knew this would be an incredible thing. Mm -hmm. Finally, the actual, the week of the show, Michael called us. We should tape the show on a Friday night, and I think Michael called us on a Tuesday. And he said, I'll come back and do a medley with my brothers, but I want to do a new song. And we didn't know what new song at that point. And after we, after we had this conversation, Suzanne and I were talking, and I said, Suzanne, who's going to take the phone call from <laughs> Marvin Gaye on Monday morning after this show airs right. saying, why did you let Michael Jackson do a new song and you wouldn't let me do a right. new song? Right. Okay? The night before the show, Thursday night, Michael was rehearsing out there with, with, with the brothers and was still insisting on this song. We went, I recall that he came and performed it in the actual Pasadena Civic Auditorium. I think Suzanne remembers it being in a rehearsal hall, but I remember it being in the auditorium. And Michael did Billie Jean. 
In full regalia. In full regalia, the moonwalk, the white socks, the glove, (laughs) the throwing of the hat. And at the end of that, we were like speechless. (laughs) And I remember saying to Suzanne, you know, I'll take the call from Marvin on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, but there's a thing where it's also got to be a a key quality to being good at what you do has got to be kind of an openness to all possibilities. You initially went into that with with a certain inclination and responded to what was clearly something that it would be a shame to miss. So I guess you maybe in some ways never have to be more nimble than on award shows, which are the next thing that I want to talk about. And I think if I have the chronology right, the first sort of the of the big ones, the, the EGOT award shows that you did would have been the Tonys. First of all, they first took place in 67. And for the next 20 years, only one guy, Alexander Cohen, yep. produced them. Alex Cohen. And then you and David Goldberg come along and do 87, 88, 89. Right. And you did some very interesting things that people should note when we're talking about this. They, the Tonys, you know, we're used to seeing numbers from the live musicals performed. You guys had scenes from the the plays as well, which are a comparable category of importance there at right. the Tonys. But I guess I wonder what you made of the overall challenge of putting on a show when the vast majority of TV consumers have never had a chance to see any of this. If they have not been in New York and able and willing to spend a lot of money on then they, they wouldn't have seen any. And even those who have maybe have seen at best two yeah. or three. Yeah. How do you put on a show when nobody's seen what you're putting on the show about? Well, it, you, you've identified one of the major problems with the Tonys, <laughs> which has gotten better. I think that the way the, the media is and the, and the instant communication we have has exposed much more theater to the, to the world and to the country than was certainly the case in the 80s. We knew this was going to be a liability. People told us you can't take a scene from August Wilson's Fences with James Earl Jones and put it on the Tonys. You can't excerpt a scene that's going to make any sense. We decided to try it anyway. We had James Earl Jones do one of the scenes on the stoop from Fences. We had Annette Benning do something from, was it Sandpiper or Sandcastle? Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. the whole play was done in the sand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trying to make it work. And I think there was some disagreement about whether they really did work or not. We just felt it was our obligation to try. Mm -hmm. But we knew what we were facing. Now, so it's on CBS in Angela Landbury's Murder, She Wrote, preceded the Tony broadcast on Sunday night. It was the number one show in the country on Sunday night. So at 7 o'clock, Angela goes on with her murder she wrote. We shot three promos with Angela on camera to put in murder she wrote, <laughs> talking about stay with me and right. watch the Tonys right. coming up right after this. All kinds of promotion. Oh, wow. She was on the cover of every Sunday supplement magazine. She was hot as a firecracker yeah. then. And we thought that that would give us some holdover. Her murder she wrote was a repeat and it ended up with a 36 share. And when the Tonys went on the air, bang, we dropped down to like a 17. Ugh. I mean, in a matter of this a minute. This was the first Tonys like, that The first did. Tonys yeah. we ever did. Yeah. Ugh. And, you know, it, and it, was, it was always a problem. Why do you think CBS continues to put it on? I'm so grateful that they do because I love, the, I love Broadway theater. But 
I don't really understand when, I guess, is it just to prevent somebody else from doing it? I would like to think that CBS kept it on the air because they felt it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. We have a whole lot. I mean, certainly Les has kept us on the air yeah. now. Yeah. But, you know, back in the 80s, there was much more of a kind of consciousness about doing the right thing, mm-hmm. about putting things on the air that might not draw the highest numbers, but reflected well right. on the network. And CBS was known as the Tiffany Network. Right. CBS also did the grand reopening of Carnegie Hall, which we did with Isaac Stern. 100th anniversary. Of and, and we also did that, which yeah. was on PBS. Yeah. And the grand reopening of Carnegie Hall, we had Zubin made in the New York Phil do the entire last movement of Mahler's Second Symphony, which was like 35 or 40 minutes straight wow. through, oh my God. no commercial interruption. Oh, my God. I just don't think that would happen. No way, right? I mean, and, and those kinds of specials even are much rarer, aren't they? On oh, yeah, the, much, on the big much, networks? much, much rarer. Let's stick with the Tonys for one second, though, because how do you weigh, I guess that, that would be the ultimate example because so much of it is built around performance, unlike, I guess, the, the Emmys and the Oscars, maybe more like the Grammys, but how do you weigh playing to the in-house audience against playing to the TV viewing audience? you got to keep both happy, but sometimes somebody's got to miss out. Whether you design a show for the in-house audience or the television audience, it's something that always enters your mind when you're putting a show together. Generally, my feeling is if it works well in the house, it's going to work well at home. Mm -hmm. If you have an electric audience that's very excited and people are responding emotionally, you can see it in their faces, you can hear it in their Mm -hmm. responses when they clap and cheer, you know, and I think the key is to make it work in the room. And if it works in the room and it's really strong in the room, the chances are it's going to work at home. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, Motown 25, with all the stage weights we had, one yeah. of the reasons that was so successful yeah. was that the audience that was sitting in the orchestra section, they would have stayed there <laughs> through the night for right. 24 hours. Right. And every time a vamp was played or every time another star came out, they went nuts. And that electricity fed every performance on stage. The big wheels, you know, the uh, executives, Barry Gordy, all the uh, high-level executives and show business people from Hollywood, they sat in the balcony. And that was good. Yeah, we we filled the entire, Suzanne and I filled the entire orchestra section with fans who had to wait in line to get tickets. So you knew they wanted to be there. And that... I, I wish I could have taken that audience with me for every show I ever did. Well, is there something to be said, though, for, you know, in the old days, from what I understand at the Oscars, for instance, there was some accessibility, and I'm talking way back, yeah. for the general public. There Obviously, the prime seating is for the talent and the Academy members who are there. But is there anything to be said for, for opening up these things a little bit more to the public? Oh, I think that, that as a producer... When you can have real fans in the audience, it does positively change the character of your audience. Mm -hmm. And often you'll see shows where the leaders and the nominees are sitting down in front and they're handsome and beautiful and they applaud and all the rest of it. But you hear screams in the background. You hear screams and yells. But they're way up 
in the third balcony. I guess that's does that happen at the Grammy? I know the Tonys, some people in the public can get in. Yeah. And I think the Grammys also, but not the Oscars or the Emmys, right? I, not that I know of. Yeah. Now, the, the Emmy tickets are real, and, and I know the Oscar tickets are really tough to get. Right, right. Now, there may be a few, but I, I'm, I may not be correct with, with my answer there. Well, speaking of the Emmys, you produced that for the first time in 93 and have done it many times since. And I guess I just wonder what makes that different than these other big ones? Is there something inherently challenging? I guess for one thing, you're you're doing a live television show for people who work in television. Yeah. What makes it different for me is that I love television. It's been a major thing in my life. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of satisfaction when we can do it well. And on Emmy night, there's a lot of mediocre television. But on Emmy night, you get to look at the good television and to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it fun for me. In terms of the show itself, you know, you're, you're dealing with a show that in two hours and six minutes has to give out 26 or 27 awards. And... With all these shows, whether it's the Emmys or the Oscars, it's not so much the Grammys, because the Grammys is really more of an entertainment yes. show than, a, than an award show. Right. But take the Oscars. There's 24 Oscars given out. Six of them are things that the audience, right. the television audience, is invested in. Right. The four acting awards, the right. director, and the motion picture. Right. The rest, they couldn't give a damn. <laughs> in Kansas City and Ohio right. and Alabama, they don't care about documentary right. short, animated short. They right. just don't. Right, right. And so your challenge is, how do we make it interesting enough in between these things right. to keep people with us? That's got to feel like a, a huge obstacle for you because there's no wiggle room with that. The Academy no. is not going to negotiate about which categories. No, you're serving two masters. Yeah. You have the Motion Picture Academy, who knows, and as a producer you agree, must honor everybody equally, okay? And that a makeup artist should have just as much prestige as a director, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you also have the network talking to you. Right. So the network is saying... Nobody every, cares. Every, <laughs> no, every, every time I've done any of these award right. shows, the first thing that the network says to you is, can't we get rid of right. some of that right. stuff? Right, And I pitched several times to the Motion Picture Academy board, you know, ways we could do it. Right. But it, it's just not something that they entertain. So you're serving two masters. Right. One is integrity to the industry mm-hmm. and a reflection of what's important in that business. Mm-hmm. And I've had some network people say, okay, if you're going to go that far, you should do this in a hotel and forget <laughs> about television. Right, right. And you know what? I see both sides of the issue, but I actually feel like, you know, we've now supposedly, I guess, in the interest of time or keeping viewers' attention, they've kicked the honorary Oscars off, the Lifetime Achievement Oscars yes. off the main telecast, and and they've handled it very nice. It's a beautiful evening that they do with the Governor's Awards, but, you know, what that should say, I think, is that it can be done in a different way, and I just feel watching it and really following this stuff closely every year, you know, they have a whole evening, the Scientific and Technology Awards, yeah. and particularly the shorts, which you mentioned are a bit of a frustration, because nobody, first of all, Nobody makes a living making shorts. They don't get theatrically exhibited except once they're nominated. And even then, 10 people see them. And I just feel like, and when you look at the history of how they came about to be on the show in the first place, it was because Margaret Herrick, the librarian, it was her pet cause. So the idea that you now, as the producer, have to accommodate three awards and then later take flack because the show went a little over when these are awards... 
I, you know, but the the counter argument, of course, is always that the shorts people, the animated and short branch, argue that to the rest of the board, if you're going to get rid of us, guess who's next? So yeah. just be careful. So it's it's just no, a it's crazy very, it's, thing. It's very tough. You're yeah. absolutely right. You you, you it, it's a very tough thing to deal with, and I know that there are people, many people, in the Academy of uh, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, AMPUS, that would like to see some trimming down of the awards that are televised. Mm -hmm. I think that they will have a very steep climb to ever get that accomplished. Well, maybe, you know, maybe the solution, I wonder what you think of this, is that I've been covering the Tonys the last several years, and I get there, and I think they do a pretty smart thing, which is that you're not going to deny the people in the less high-profile categories their moment to be part of the show. So they have a pre-show, pre-televised portion where they, I don't know if they did this the last time you were doing the Tonys yourself, but now they, they do this during the pre-show. They give out, you know, scenic design of a play and all of these categories that are maybe less sexy. They film it. The audience is in its seats. They have to be in their seats. So they get the exact same moment, except that what shows up on television is a little snippet of their acceptance speech. And so they are still a part of the televised broadcast, but you don't have to subject the viewers to That's stuff correct. they don't know or care about. I think about. that the Tonys do the best job with this, and this is something that I pitched yeah. several times to the Motion Picture Academy. Mm-hmm. But the question is, are you paying enough respect to those people? So much of these award shows, so much of the time is consumed with people getting up out of their seats, yeah. <laughs> reacting to their significant other that's there, right. g- getting down the aisle to the stage and getting off the stage. And by shortening the walk up and the walk yeah. off and maybe making a little trim in what they do, you can cut these things down by 40 to 50% and still be very respectful yeah. to the winners. Well, here's the question about that, yeah. though. I love the traditions of especially the Oscars, but all of these shows. So I'm not sure that I even believe in this idea. But just hypothetically, you have a camera. When they announce the nominees in any category, you have a camera on each of them anyway. Why, instead of making them come up to the stage, don't you bring the award to them and they they give the speech right there? Okay, Gil Cates tried that about seven or eight years ago. (laughs) Gil Cates, God bless him, tried all kinds of ways to expedite the process. He was directing most of these? No, he was producing. producing. Gil, Gil Cates produced the Oscars all during the Billy Crystal period where he was like, you know, in, in the 90s and early 2000s. And he was an, a really terrific Oscar producer. Right, sure. But one year he tried that and he got creamed for it. I mean, people hated it. Because they, they want their they full didn't moment. Get the, they didn't get the full moment. <laughs> right. One year he tried bringing all the nominees up on the stage together. Whoa. So there'd be five people lined up on the stage and one of them would win and the other four would stay there and applaud. It was a, it was a way to avoid walk-ups. And, you know, things like that. He did this at the Oscars or at the Emmys? Oscars. Oscars. I don't even remember. That's no, Gil amazing. Never, Gil ne- no, I didn't think he Gil did Gil never Emmys. did the Emmys. So, wow. Gil did crazy. the Oscars. It's been tried. Yeah. I mean, you know, we started something where we would move. What What's happening now with both Emmys and Oscars yeah. is that there's more and more nominations. Yes, yes. Which means nominees and potential winners are sitting farther and farther back in right, the house. Right, right, If you sit in row 15 mm-hmm. or you're in row 45 right. 
there's a gigantic difference oh, yeah. in time. Oh, yeah. So we came up with an idea on the Oscars in which we would bring nominees for the next two awards and sit them in the side boxes. Right. For these are the these are the the, the major people are still the ma- people nominated in the major categories are still seated up front. But you're talking about all right. It's time yes. for best visual sound effects. mixing and right, sound right, editing. Right, two right. separate Oscars. Right. Right. Okay. You put one in one box, one in the other box, and the walk is right out of the box and up so on smart. the stage. Yeah. You save 22, 23 seconds. And then they all get shuffled out after the category. That is correct. Yeah. In the next commercial break, and somebody else comes right. in and sits I think it's brilliant. There have been a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I once did a comedy bit on the Emmys years ago in which I introduced a concept called the uh, ejection seat, <laughs> right? whatever thing, and we had a dummy in an ejection seat. <laughs> I forgot who, I think Shandling was over. Right, right. And we said, here's what we're going to do this year. He pulled out and read an envelope, a winner, a phony name (laughs) on a winner. And the the dummy was just shot to the stage out of the ejection sheet and landed at a clump on the floor. That is great. Because as producers, that is very tempting. Right, right. The other thing that's tempting is a square. Yeah. By the microphone, where people talk too long, you can just drop, drop them the down. Door. <laughs> well, so because I know it's not fun to have to play the music to get somebody out of there, it's but you got to do it. You it's gotta... so disrespectful. Yeah. Well, but it's also disrespectful to you if they disregard what. Yeah. And you give them plenty of advance notice about you got your forty-five seconds or whatever. Yeah. But let me ask about the one Emmys that you were going to do that you didn't end up doing because of. A crazy situation and that was the one that was originally supposed to take place the week after 9-11 how did you guys handle that ellen was hosting that and i think 9-11 it was on a sunday and i think the tuesday before i think it was tuesday mm-hmm. of 2001 mm-hmm. the world trade center happened mm-hmm. the 9-11 happened we knew immediately that we couldn't go forward as as needed yeah. the show was on cbs and Les Moonwives was very much involved in all these decisions. And it was decided to postpone it. And we postponed it, I think, five weeks. And we had come up with a show that was really going to be good. We were, for the, for the postponed show, yeah. the second attempt, mm-hmm. we were linking New York with L.A. We were paying tribute to New York. We had Walter Cronkite in New York. We had NYPD in New York. We were going to go back and forth with the awards. We were using Studio 8H, yes. where yes. SNL is. And we were going to end the show with a police officer. There was a singing police officer in New York. It yeah. was wonderful. And we had a choir in New York. And the uh, UCLA choir out here on our stage, they were going to sing God Bless America in, you know, in, in sync with one mm-hmm. another. It was full of incredible emotional moments. And it is the Sunday morning of the show. I've forgotten the date. It was October. Yeah, it was in, in early October or yeah. mid-October. Yeah. And we're rehearsing. We're, we're connected to New York, rehearsing back and forth. It's about 12.30 on Sunday. We're going on the air at 5. And one of the trophy girls comes over to me. And I never interact with the trophy girls. <laughs> and so she comes over and taps me on the shoulder and says, Mr. Misher? I said, yeah. My mother just called me from Kansas to say that the Emmys have been canceled. And she was right. Mm-hmm. No one bothered to call us. Jesus. Unbelievable. <laughs> and she had heard it from CBS. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was like, what? 
Yeah. You know? And, and so, that must and, so then, then we, we had to postpone that. And then we were producing two and a half months after that, the opening ceremonies of the Salt Lake City Olympics. And Gary Smith took over to produce it. Yeah. And I, I helped him a little bit, but basically Gary did it because we had to kind of bow out. It was a terrible, yeah. rough, tough time. Sure. And the, uh, the business felt really bad about giving each other statues and yeah, sure. awards at a time. Oh, the reason it was canceled the second time, by the way, was we, that's when we started bombing Afghanistan. Right. Timing was not on your side on, yeah. on those. Yeah. The last of the of the three big award shows that I think you've done, because Grammys have not, have you, you've not done no, the Grammys, right? Not, not done the Grammys. And and any reason or just different? No, it's, it's been Ken, Ken Ehrlich, who happens to be a friend of yeah. mine, has really done an excellent job with it. And he has a very solid relationship with Neris. Yeah. And I just don't think there was any need for anybody right. else. I mean, I would never, ever, like, go after a show and sure. try and pull it out from somebody else. Sure. Somebody else. But the Oscars is the third of the big three that you, you have done. And, and let's just note, for the 83rd and 84th, you were the producer and for the 85th, you were the director. I directed the other two, too. As well. Okay, so yeah, it was, I, three I got yeah. it. So the 83rd was hosted by, just to contextualize for people, 83rd is was hosted by Anne Hathaway and James Franco. 84th was hosted by Billy Crystal. Right. 85th by Seth MacFarlane. Right. And each of those hosts w- were interesting, and I'd love to get your take on it. But the gist of the thing with the Oscars that I've, I've come to learn, and I wonder if you feel this is correct— is that no matter what the host does or how good or bad they are or who it is or whatever, it seems like the thing that the ratings correlate with more than anything is the popularity of the nominees. So it almost, you don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it it, it has less to do with the ratings There's than There's no anything. question. I mean, you go back in history and Dances with Wolves went through the roof on the ratings. Yeah. Titanic, very, very high ratings. And when you have art films independent films that are not big films, people in the country are less invested in it Mm -hmm. and the ratings go down. That is very predictable. Mm -hmm. That's one reason why the Motion Picture Academy decided to go with 10 nominations. They were hoping that they would, that that by going from five to 10 Mm -hmm. nominations or as many as 10, there would be films nominated that might be popular that would have people in the middle of the country tuning in to see whether their, their film won. Yeah. You know? Unfortunately, I guess, or or you could argue either way, but what proved to be the case was they got five more of the same kinds of movies, right? I mean, for the very most that, part. That's pretty much true. And, you know, it's the, the distribution of content is changing so much now that this, you know, from my generation, the Oscars is appointment television. Yeah. Honey, the Oscars are on on Sunday night. Let's bring a couple of people over. Right. For my son, who lives in Brooklyn... And this, this is a study. This is not yeah, me yeah, talking about yeah, my son, but it's a, a study. The millennials, yeah. they make a decision, I think, 42 or 43 minutes before the Oscars go on the air about whether or not they're going to watch it. And it's greatly influenced by social media, you know, whether they're going to watch it. And so maybe for them, the host, for younger generations, the host may be more central to their decision about it whether or not. It could be, yeah. Not to, I know we're kind of all over the place because you've had such a varied you know number of things that you've done, but I want to ask you about Super Bowl halftime shows, right? Which really I think people forget didn't really exist in the way that we know about until you come along in '93 with one 
Michael Jackson, and it became the second most watched thing in history after after the match finale. Yeah. What led to the decision to have somebody of Michael Jackson's caliber do that? And also, how did it work out with, I know there was a little bit of tension because up to that point, they assume, you know, all right, this is going to be on NBC, so they're going to do the halftime production. That was not going to happen with Michael Jackson. Yeah, Michael Jackson happened in 1993 because of what happened in 1992, (laughs) okay? And Living Color was on the air on Fox in 1992. They, at at that Super Bowl in 1992, they said, look, during halftime show, forget about the marching bands and and 100 Mickey Mouses dancing around on (laughs) on the field and come over and watch us on Fox. The score at halftime was 24 to 6, I think. People went to Fox, and they stayed at Fox and never came back. And the NFL said, we have to do something else with our halftime show. So Michael Jackson was chosen. Dick Ebersol was head of NBC Sports, a friend of mine who's a very talented man. Mm -hmm. And... Michael said, because we had worked together, I'd done a lot with Michael Jackson. Including the Motown. Including Motown and some other stuff. I want Don to direct this. And I remember Dick saying, you know, we just can't do that. This is is an NBC sports production, and we're not going to let a non-sports person walk into our truck and sit down and direct this thing (laughs) using our cameraman. That's impossible, you know. And Michael said, that's what I want. And so understanding Dick and everybody, I said to Michael, look, Michael, I don't have to sit in the chair and direct this. I can sit with Gonzo. He was a, John Gonzalez was the director of the game. I can sit next to Gonzo and the TD and make sure that the shots that are coming up are the shots that you like and are going to cover the action the best possible way. I will be able to influence how this thing is directed. And he said, nope, I want you in the chair. That's it. (laughs) And it was a standoff for a while, and we ended up in the chair. And during the commercial break ahead of time, um, John Gonzalez and his AD left, and I went up with Alan Carton, who was my associate director. We sat down. We had 26, 27 cameras, and we shot the show. And it was unbelievable. It it, it worked out well. You know know? what's funny, just as a personal note, because I am 31, that was the first Super Bowl that I ever watched, and I remember the oh, halftime show like nothing else. I still, yeah. it's like yeah. every moment of it. And I think that you set the standard there for what it was going to be forever after. And in, and in fact, you've now done, let's just note, Paul McCartney in 2005, Rolling Stones in 2006, Tom Petty in 2008, Bruce Springsteen in 2009, and then the one that I think people now regard as the best ever Prince in 2007, the New York Times called it, quote, one of the most thrilling halftime shows ever, close quote. It was Prince, appropriately enough, in the rain. And right. I know that wasn't something you were hoping <laughs> no, for, no. but it, it came together. No, Prince was incredible to work with. God, that was such a great experience. But, you know, Prince had a, the stage was designed like his logo. And it was very, very slippery. Mm-hmm. We had a band up there and... Prince had two dancers called the Twins. They had eight-inch heels. And the night before, I couldn't go to sleep because because rain was kind of predicted. Mm-hmm. And I said, God almighty, what happens if one of the Twins falls down? 
Does Prince just step over them and we keep going? <laughs> Do I cut to a wide shot and we and we get a stretcher right there and get her body off the stage? And then Prince was also playing four electric guitars. And so we were really hoping we would not have rain. And the day was went through pretty well. And the first half was tolerable. And we go to the halftime show. We're now setting up this platform, which is in like 46 pieces. And as we're counting down to start the halftime show, it's like a cue to God. This, the clouds open up and it's just raining torrentially. And so, you know, I'm in a truck, we go on the air and I'm trying not to panic because I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. About 45 seconds in, I began to realize, my God, you know, this could be a blessing. We have a look here which we could never have created. We have diamonds on the lens, droplets of water. We have an ethereal smoke rising off the field that's sweeping across prints. You know, I mean, this is this is an, an ethereal feeling that we could never have created. And it became a real blessing in the end. Absolutely. And, and I know that, and I, I would love to ask you if you can just note as a, as a last thing on Super Bowl halftime shows, that has got to feel in some ways the most living on the edge of any of these because talk about the constrictions in a way that you have when you have to put that thing together in the middle of, of the game when time and the, the condition of the field and all these other things are, are concerns. What are, you, what are you facing? What's your time? Well, the first when you, when you book your talent for the Super Bowl halftime show, the first meeting you have, point blank, I would always start by saying, I want you to understand, like Tom, if it's Tom Petty, right. you're not in control of this, mm-hmm. okay? This is not you going on tour, not you with your roadies setting up the stage and all the rest of this. You know, you're not in control. Mm-hmm. And there are certain conditions that have to be met. And if you're going to have trouble meeting those, you should reconsider this. Mm-hmm. One is the length of the show. One is the feasibility of setting this thing up. It took... 620 people to set up that Prince stage in about five minutes and 20 seconds. And it's got, and you time it down to the You time it down to the second. That's part of the fun of it. That's part of the fun of it, you know. Wow. That's the first thing. And if, you know, they they understand they have to accept that. The last of the kinds of things that you do, I guess we can call maybe, I don't know even how to properly pronounce it, potpourri, potpourri, yeah, (laughs) we'll just all encompass it, right? (laughs) So everything from the 2004 Democratic National Convention through what, you know, the aforementioned Olympics, which you did in Atlanta in 96 and Salt Lake City in 2002, with things like, let's do the the convention first if we can. This is John Kerry, and I think, I don't know if you could laugh at it at the time, but I think it was, I think you of all people are entitled to at least one F word once in a while, and in this case, what brought it on? It was not fun at the time. Yeah. (laughs) CNN had asked to listen in on my PL, and I had two PLs. I had one which was the one to the crew, my staff, the stage managers, the camera guys, so forth. And I had one that was a pool PL that went to all the news heads, NBC, CBS, BBC, you know, <laughs> Al Jazeera. Right. I mean, went to everybody. Right. And I thought CNN was on that one. And every time I hit that button, I was very proper. Right. And I would say stuff like, 
Okay, Senator Kerry's going to enter from Vomitorium 23 and 45 seconds. <laughs> 10 seconds, here he comes, right. you know, and that kind of stuff. And then I go back to my PL where I could talk openly. But they were tapped into the other one, and I didn't know that. But why was the PL on the, on the air at all? That's not... Well, That they decided to... Uh, they had a... I, I don't know because I haven't had yeah. the, the guts to go back and look at this whole thing. <laughs> People have told me that they put other things on the air, like I was talking to Willie Nelson at one point over the PL. But this is their fault. You're, you're entitled to think you're well, having you a Well, you know private... what? Ted Turner said that yeah. after this blew up. Uh, yeah. Ted Turner said... Why would they, why did they do this? It's ridiculous to imply. I, I don't yeah. know that anyone really held it against you, but if they, you, you don't, you have no reason to expect when you're talking to your crew on these things that anyone else is going to hear no, this. No, no. But what brought it on was that the balloons didn't. The drop. balloon. We were we brought the entire crew into Boston to do the Democratic convention. We were told by the Boston Democratic Party, you've got to hire some local vendors. So. We decided the safest thing to do would be to hire a local balloon vendor, okay? They put the balloons up there in nets like 10 days ahead of time. And by the time we got to the convention, full of people, it got hot. And when they pulled the trip lines to release the balloons, the balloons had pushed so hard against the netting that the trip lines were stuck. And I just lost it. Because that's the sort of the, from the pageantry side of things, that's the big moment. Yeah, that's the big moment. And, and you know, I knew I was going to get blamed for this, and I, I just lost it. And that's okay. I, I really think that's an absolutely excusable. First yeah. of all, it's understandable that you would say it. Secondly, <laughs> it's understandable that you wouldn't expect that they're going to put that out on the air. That's no, their, their problem. I, all I remember is I'm sitting up there at, on top of this thing they call the Cadillac, yeah. you know, with and and... There's like phones all around. Yeah. And so about 20 seconds, 30 seconds after that got on the air, <laughs> my assistant, Jason Ermacher, says to me, hey, man, I don't know what's happening, but everybody <laughs> wants to talk to you. Every morning show in town right. today, all they want right. you in. They want you in tomorrow morning. <laughs> and, what, and is this I didn't case? know yet. Did you engage or did you did you realize that oh, you no, could, no, no, could no. you have fun with it yet or not yet? Oh, God, no. I was so depressed. And I, I went to the hotel room. I got up and took a 6.30 flight back. I was supposed to come back later that afternoon, Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. I landed. My wife picked me up. And I said, you know, I, I feel devastated, humiliated, blah, 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 blah. And so and she said, I tell you what, let's drive around Beverly Hills. We were going to be landscaping our yard. Mm-hmm. Let's just drive around Beverly Hills mm-hmm. and get some. Let me get some ideas for landscaping. Right, right. <laughs> and I turned the radio on, and there I was. I mean, over and over and over again. You know. Well, okay. it took me. It took me a long time. It's actually unfair because the only time that people in the general public notice the director or producer on the live TV events is if something does go wrong. You yeah. don't get too many pats on the back no, from the yeah. public if you do your job. Which you right. do 99.9% of the time. Yeah. But is the polar opposite of that sort of a feeling when you are able to pull off something that it goes even better than you could have imagined, like Muhammad Ali lighting the torch in Atlanta? Yeah. Because no, that definitely. just seems like that would And would've... Prince felt that way, too. And Prince did, I mean, yeah. Prince felt that way. We took what started out to be a liability, mm-hmm. and it turned into be an asset. 
And the same though applies to Ali. And right? Ali, no, no question. Because here's a guy who at that yeah. point was. And I, I still believe that the reason that had the impact it did is it was an absolute secret. Dick Ebersole knew, I knew, David Goldberg knew, and there were two other people who knew. Ali had a man named Howard Bingham who was his kind of confidant yeah. photographer and managed his life. Yeah. I knew that if Howard Bingham came walking into our office at Olympic Stadium that people would connect the dots. So we met Howard in a garage and in a garbage room <laughs> at the stadium, which is where the Atlanta Braves now play. Right, right. And we rehearsed Ali at two o'clock in the morning in darkness, used flashlights, turned up all the lights, right. released all the security. And the fact that it was a surprise is what made that work. Oh, that's great. We now come to taking the stage, which is the latest in this incredibly long line of, of amazing live events. And this one, just to contextualize for people, the full title is Taking the Stage, African-American Music and Stories That Change America. It was an event to celebrate the opening of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. You filmed this back on September 24th, 2016. It was broadcast in January 2017 with outgoing President Obama in attendance. And I think that the response to this couldn't have been much better. And, and I wonder if you can just talk about how it all I guess started with a call from Quincy Jones. Yeah, I just want to say we're extremely proud of this show. As, as I mentioned, you know, you try to do things that have some meaning beyond yeah. just entertainment. Yeah. And I think for, based on the, the, the tweets that I read, we were trended number one for three or four hours. It was a game changer for people. Yeah. And so we felt really good about it. When the Civil War ended, just a few weeks later, there were people who were calling for some sort of museum for the African-American experience, you know, in Washington. Mm -hmm. Never happened. Mm -hmm. And they needed money from Congress, and the Smithsonian did, to, to entertain this idea. Mm -hmm. And it was George Bush who finally... W. Was, but yeah, 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 right, to get, to get the money to, to build it. And so Lonnie Bunch was the uh, creative uh, founder, the founding director, and Quincy's on the board, and they decided they wanted to try and televise it. And Quincy came to us and asked us if we'd be interested. Of course, we jumped at the opportunity, mm -hmm. and we spent time developing some ideas and proposals and sent it to them. And those were the first steps to make it happen. And a year of work, a year, a full yeah. year. Is oh, it was that... a full year of work, yeah. Even for me, personally, mm -hmm. going through the content of that museum really deepened my understanding of what the black experience has been like in this country for 400 years, you know? And I read things like a bill of sale for a six-year-old African-American girl. She was sold for $640 in Memphis, Tennessee, and she had light brown eyes and yellow hair, you know, something like that. And you go through this stuff and, and it makes you appreciate what this struggle was and how African-Americans used their creativity in painting, in music, in athletics, and everything else to like advance the cause. Athletes, African-American athletes, used their skills to help people understand and, and, to, and to fight for injustice. Comics, you know, same way. Comics would make us laugh, the, the black comics, but they were also 
a voice that was being heard and respected in music. It's unbelievable. And so the, the, because of this appreciation that you had and had expanded though, by being, by looking at the museum itself, how much did that influence the structure of the special, the TV special in the sense that, I mean, you, for people who haven't yet had a chance to see it, they should go check it out. I think it's still available on online. The way it seemed to me was that you would show an artifact like that letter of sale or of somebody, you know, Muhammad Ali's boxing gloves or whatever, and then you would cut to a current black performer interpreting a work or, you know, a song or a poem or whatever from one of the people who helped shape the culture. Yeah, well, one of our objectives was, and this came from Lonnie Bunch, Mm -hmm. the um, founding director. He he said, this is not African-American history. Mm -hmm. This is American history. Mm -hmm. And this is how African-Americans have influenced all of America. Mm -hmm. This is a show about all of us. So we had people on the show who were not African-American, but who had been affected by it, mm-hmm. like Christine Aguilera singing Stormy Weather, mm-hmm. or Tom Hanks, as you know, as a military yeah. historian, produced so many military films and television series, you know, had him talking about the Tuskegee Airmen, mm-hmm. you know, Dave Grohl on how he was in- influenced by the black music of Washington, D.C. So that, that's what this thing was. And it from the very beginning, we said... This cannot be comprehensive. There's simply no way. So we just picked seven or eight highlights and did something in each one of those. Mm-hmm. Usher we, doing James Brown. Yeah, Usher right. doing James Brown. Neo doing Michael Jackson. Patty Austin and Savion Glover doing a Harlem Club. And this is you coming up with, here's a good pairing for a tribute? Is that how? Yeah, no, we, we did a lot of research. Yeah. And we had, like in my office, we had an official list of African-American historic moments in this Mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. And then we had an unofficial list that was something that people weren't really aware of. And we tried to pick a little bit of both. I mean, Marian Anderson's 1939 concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Mary J. Blige sang that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a recognizable moment. So, and we tried to show how in comedy, in athletics... And in rap mm-hmm. and in gospel, you know, jazz and blues and dance, you know, we tried to show, and we only scratched the surface, we tried to show the influences of African Americans in our culture. And we went back and we found early recordings of people who were doing a call and response in the fields when they were picking cotton, you know, and we'd, we'd take that and we'd show how that developed into a blues kind of riff or, or groove yeah. or, what, or whatever and and then affected all of us. I mean, and we all benefited from it. Did not having lived the black experience yourself make you in any way reluctant to take this on, knowing that it was of such importance to the black community? Did you feel in any... Obviously, you educated yourself, you went to the museum, you took the steps necessary, but did it give you any pause at all? Yes, I, I did. And there were many, many times I said to Lonnie and to Quincy and to some of our writers, you know, look, I'm a white guy. I could be completely screwing this up. You know, I tended to look at things in terms of the protests and the progress of uh, through 
aggressive action and resistance and fighting injustice, in the beginning, I think I shortchanged just the pure cultural contributions. And so I kept saying, help me, help me, because I'm not sure. You know, there were times in which I said, you know, if I screw this up, man, I'm the only guy responsible for this. <laughs> so, But it was nice that you had each other to, to, to lean on because you obviously could turn to Quincy, who you know. Yeah. And similarly, he, you know, if he had a live television question, there's not a, anyone else that he could turn to who would be better than than you. So, I mean, it just seems like it ended up being a great thing, but I could see how that might have initially. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, well, it's a, it's a responsibility because, you know, the hand of the producer can misguide things Mm -hmm. sometimes, but God, I felt so good about it in the end. I mean. And how about in the moment when it happened? What was the the cultural moment of today, which is interesting. So you recorded in September before the election. Right. It airs in January. Talk about how, what was going on in the world today changed the viewing experience for people that were there. Well, yeah. I mean, we taped this show in September at the Kennedy Center. The next day, we actually also produced the official opening of the museum. And we taped it in front of the president and a number of Washington dignitaries and all this. And it was a time of uncertainty and fear about what was going to happen in the election. The campaign's hitting high speed, Mm -hmm. you know, at that point. November 8th comes and Trump is elected president. I felt suddenly that this show maybe had a little more relevance. And then when ABC decided, uh, Channing Dungey and Ben Sherwood at ABC decided to put it on the Thursday before the inauguration, I realized that this is probably going to be the last time the public sees the president and, and, and Michelle Obama, you know, at an official event. And the most gratifying thing that night was watching them respond. I don't know if you saw the show. Oh, absolutely. Oh, you did. They're lip syncing. They're clapping along. He was having a blast. I I never saw the president more relaxed. And I've done a lot of stuff with him, Mm -hmm. jazz at the White House and all kinds of, never saw him more relaxed. And it just felt so good oh, real to see that. Testament you know. to the job you guys did. It was fantastic. Yeah. And you know, now we're we're hoping that we can get that people will consider voting for this in the variety music. Oh, they absolutely should. It's totally deserving. And this is a category where other events that are filmed in a sense of a performance sense sure. yeah. are then edited for television, not aired live, but put together and and this is just so beautifully produced. And if from the minute Oprah comes out at the beginning until, I mean, I was especially blown away by the Usher performance. It's just a blast. There's no, yeah. and you know. So it's, glad to hear you say that, oh, Scott. it's totally, <laughs> I really loved it. And I yeah. think that, you know, it's one of the few things where you can have a good time and actually learn. So I had not known the story of the, of the woman on the steps of the Capitol giving that speech in the details that you guys got into. And no, it was great, and and it was nice. I know that almost every major black artist, I know there were a few people that were very regretfully unable to be there, like Denzel, but, I mean, you had Will Smith, Oprah. Yeah, and we had, we you know, Chris Rock was going to be there, then he got sick. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you know what? That's part of That's live this. TV, this right? That's live TV, man. And so for And the, you got to be ready to roll with it and fill up the holes. No, it was a, it's an A+. Plus. And, and I hope with our last, like, two minutes here, if I may, we have a thing we do called rapid fire, where it's essentially first thing that comes to your mind. Right. I'll, I'll give it a shot. All right. 
Who, apart from Don Mischer, is the all-time greatest maker of live TV events? David Wolper. Super Bowl halftime shows. He, he was a big thinker. Right. And then eventually, eventually did Roots, right? He did, did Roots, and mm-hmm. he did the Statue of Liberty refurbishing ceremonies in 1986. Right. What's the job you wish you hadn't turned down that you did? Probably taking a, a stronger role in, in helping the Chinese in 2008 with the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Did I hear also maybe Saturday Night Live? You took you took oh, the wrong Saturday okay, Night okay, Live, okay, right? Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm struggling in New York doing late night television. I had a job, uh, an offer from Rune Arledge, who was a genius in television, to do a new show with Howard Cosell mm-hmm. called Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and a young guy named Lauren Michaels called me and said, I've got a late night show. I'll guarantee you eight of them. I want you to come direct Saturday Night Live. And at that point, his one was what called Saturday Night or something. It wasn't. They weren't both simultaneously. I Saturday. don't. I don't really remember. But honestly. They, okay, sure, yeah. sure. And I chose the one that paid the most, the one that was in prime time, and right. the one that gave it, guaranteed me eighteen episodes as opposed to eight. Right. And for four or five years, I suffered the consequences. <laughs> <laughs> I chose the wrong one. Okay. Now here's where we're going to really test you. Job you wish you had turned down that you didn't. Oh, my God. I don't know. I didn't do that. I'm going to say the Heisman Awards that I did when I lived in New York back in, like, 1976 or 77. It wasn't. It was uh, so bad. We didn't even get to light the audience. And when we cut the winners, there'd just be darkness in the screen. It was terrible. Job that you're proudest of, of all these many ones that we've talked about. Is there Uh, one night or one event? That's hard. I don't know whether I can answer that. I mean... Olympics are in a class by themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of taking the stage, and I'm very proud of the Prince Halftime Show mm-hmm. in Motown 25. Mm-hmm. That's not a good answer. No, it's okay. That's anyway. okay. The worst thing that's gone wrong under your watch on a show? The F word at the Democratic Convention. But I remember on the, on the Elder Bush's inaugural gala in front of 12,000 people in Washington, I had a singer on a live show a minute and 30 seconds before introducing her to sing, said, I'm not coming out of my dressing room. I don't like this dress. And in the same show, a Frank Sinatra got up on the stage and he was going to sing two songs and then say something to the president and Barbara Bush. And after one song, he kind of lost his place and I felt really badly for him mm-hmm. and what happened. And we waited for 17 seconds and then faded into black. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, those those things come along. Yeah, they happen. I imagine that you sometimes watch these shows even when you're not the one that's working on them. And so I want to just ask for your candid thoughts on when you saw something go wrong, what went through your mind? So the Janet Jackson nipple slip on a Super Bowl halftime show. What went through my mind first was that could not be an accident. You know, it was too coordinated. It had to be planned. Do you still think it was? I think it was not announced, mm-hmm. but I think there was, between Janet and Justin and her wardrobe people, I think, I don't know, this is purely sure. opinion. Sure, And I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. But I kind of think there was some plan there. Yeah. The La La Land Moonlight Best Picture debacle. How early on did you realize something was amiss? And what would you have done differently? Well, when I saw it happening, the first thing I thought was, thank God I'm not there doing this one. You know, (laughs) my second thought was the accountants, what happened to them? Mm -hmm. 
mistakes can happen, right? Okay, but when they happen, you have to act. Yeah, you don't sit around and think about it. You've got to act. Get out there on the stage and say, "Hold it." We think a mistake has been made. Mm-hmm. Mistakes can happen. That's bad enough, but that's not the real issue. The problem was how long it took to correct it. It took 45 seconds for people to get up there, and you had two people speaking, ending with Mark Platt. You know, speaking. Actually, the next guy, Fred Berger, started. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Before anybody came out there to stop oh, right. Oh, so I see what you're saying. Sorry. Okay, yeah. But so was what tipped you off, though, that something was amiss? Did you see the... Guys with the headsets behind them and say that doesn't happen. The minute Gary Natoli, who's the head, the, who's the stage manager, yeah. does a lot of stuff for us, yeah, and did all of my Oscar yeah. shows, yeah, the minute he came out there, I knew that there was an issue, and there was something strange. Yeah. There was a there was a, a hint, yeah, when Warren Beatty handed that card. Did you didn't think he was just mugging for time or whatever to be funny? It was you thought something might actually be wrong. Well, he was. He, I I think he he was supposed. To hand her the envelope. And he didn't. And she was supposed to read it. So he opened it up and he said to himself, I think there's something wrong here. But then he handed it to her. And then she went ahead and announced it. And you think the producers who were first timers here, DeLuca and Todd, did they handle it as well as you could have? Or what could they have done differently? I I don't think there's much they could have done on the spur of the moment. I mean, again, you know... The show, I think they did a really good job with the show, yeah. and I think the show at this point is kind of in the hands of the director right. and the stage managers, and it's kind of on the way. I don't think there's anything they could have done to have improved it. But the other thing that I thought after it happened was, I said, I think it's very fortunate that it wasn't the other way around. Oh, yeah. That La La Land right. won when Moonlight had been announced. After two years of Oscar So White, that would have been yes. the final nail yeah. in the coffin. Yeah. That would have been really, really tough. But to the production side of things, I, I've heard people at the Academy say that they they don't fault the producers or the or anyone, which makes sense. It was clearly a screw-up on the part of the accountants, but that they were actually pretty impressed with how it was handled once the problem started to go down in the sense that somehow they immediately zoomed in on that card that showed it was Moonlight, which... Maybe, you know, I guess it... Now, I, that is, that's Glenn Weiss, the director. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that everybody that was up on that stage mm-hmm. handled it very graciously. Yeah. I mean, it could have been... Even worse. Nasty. But it was a, a really good reflection on the Motion Picture Academy yeah. and on the movie industry, the film industry, that it was handled this way. But, Don, what would have happened if there was one producer instead of three, the guy says his speech, and the show ended? Oh, my God. Uh, i don't know i don't know what would i I mean there's nobody who knows that that's a mistake you understand that right only the accountants know that right the director doesn't know it the stage manager doesn't know it we never producers we never see anything none of us on the crew before it's before it's announced so had that happened I don't know. I mean, it would have been like a major earthquake <laughs> yeah. in town. And the final one is that when you look around at the TV landscape today versus when you started, let's just note that for something like the Oscars today, I think there's a study that says at least three quarters of the viewers have a second screen in their hand, meaning a smartphone or something. Yes. On that note, does it? do you see that looking forward as a person who makes live TV? Do you see that as a good thing, an opportunity, 
Do you see it as a bad thing since nobody has any attention span anymore? And then overall, I mean, when you look at these live events, they are the last thing that people watch en masse. I know. Yeah, live events are the last thing that where families gather together to watch yeah. them together. Yeah. You know, I think the second screen experience is what it is, and it's not going to change. Mm-hmm. I know from, like, things that happened with me. One year I was directing, and Angelina Jolie came out in this elegant black gown. And then when she got to the microphone, her leg, her right leg, she stuck yes, out. Yes, I remember. Okay, and there was a ooh and a reaction in yep. the audience. And she was clearly having fun with the right. audience and smiled. Two weeks later, we saw the minute by minutes, and it's, everything just shot up after that. Because everybody else is saying on Twitter or whatever, go look at go Angelina look at Jolie legs. on the Oscars. Right. Go look at Channel 7. And then when uh, Jennifer Lawrence won for Silver Linings Playbook, I and think. And tripped. And she tripped on yeah. the way up. Yeah. Same thing. The social media spiked, and ratings popped up also. So social media has an effect, you know, and it can drive people to your website. I mean, I'd love to see the ratings for this year's Oscars to see what happened. Now, it was so long, the show was so right. long, that a lot of people didn't see it and read about it the next day. In the, or, in Don, the what about people like my parents who hear, and the, they just want to know what won, and the best picture winner is La La Land, TV Can I off. Donate? That was <laughs> Right. I mean, you can't make yeah. this up. Oh, God. Unbelievable. No, it's true. But thank you so much. This is a one Scott. of a kind. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. talking with you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.